Boker Tov, welcome everyone to our Aliyah Day. Glad to be with you from wherever you're watching all over the Fruited Plain. We have a great Aliyah today. It's uh, Parasha Beshalak, of course. It's the fourth reading. And this is the Song of the Sea, the Song at the Sea anyway. The song that Moshe sang, the song that uh, Miriam sang, the song that we, uh, we all sang together. And the song that we will sing at the resurrection of the dead. So it's a great day to be here. I'm glad that you're with us. We are in the book of Exodus, in the book of Shemot. And we, the fourth Aliyah begins in chapter 14 at verse 26. So let's begin reading and uh, diving in, no pun intended, into the uh, Torah portion. So it says, we left off yesterday, I should say, where the uh, Egyptians were trying to follow us into the uh, sea. They thought that they could also go across on dry uh, dry ground. They were wrong. So bad idea. But they tried to follow us. So it says, Hashem said to Moshe, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters will go back upon Egypt, upon its chariots and upon its horsemen. Now, uh, I should say that we read in the Torah that the wheels of their chariots got stuck in the mud. They didn't have four-wheel drive chariots. That was their big mistake. They should have had four-wheel drive chariots. Instead, they only had front-wheel drive. And as a result, they got stuck in the mud. But what Rabbi Nubakia brings down is that uh, there's also an idea, a concept, that Hashem caused fire to shoot forth from the uh, pillar of fire and burnt up their wheels. Uh, but either way, they didn't make it. So uh, whether it was uh, the wheels were on fire or they were stuck in the mud, either way. Now, I want to point back something in uh, verse 24 from Rabbi Monk. He says, uh, talking about the verse where it talks about the, the morning watch, says the, the Midrash states <clears throat> and, and teaches that the angel Gabriel you know, Gabriel, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael, these are the four great, mighty, general uh, angels. I just want to say something because uh, very often in popular literature, we think about Gabriel as this cute little cherub, and he's playing a harp, and he looks like a little, uh, what's those diapers? You know, the little pamper baby, you know, flying around. But in fact, Gabriel is... The uh, a mighty warrior angel, not somebody you want to mess with. Some say that he also operates as the angel of death, and and then some say the angel of death is a completely different entity. But the the point being is that Gabriel is the uh, no one to be messed with. He's not like a little cute little cherub. So it says here Gabriel wanted to strike the Egyptians during the night, but <clears throat> God told him to wait for the morning hours. Why? Well, the reason why is because this is in the uh, merit of, of Abraham. Abraham rose early to take Isaac, his son, to Mount Moriah and offer him as a, uh, as a sacrifice. So we see that the splitting of the sea and the punishment of, uh, of the uh, Egyptians was in the merit of the sacrifice of the son uh, who was uh, loved. Uh, Rabbi Monk points out also that the Pesach offering, the carbon Pesach, was offered Bain Charvarim, that is in the afternoon, that is between the evenings. Why? Why was the carbon Pesach offered 
at the time and the and the afternoon and the evening. And uh, keep in mind that what I'm about to tell you when we talk about uh, well, let me say, let me let me read it first. So why was the carbon Pesach offered at that time? Because that was the very same hour in which the Brit Bain Haftarim, the covenant between between the parts, was done between Hashem and Avraham. So we see the Pesach, the Corbin Pesach, is offered at the same time that the covenant between the parts was offered. Why is that significant? Because we know that Yeshua was the ultimate Corbin Pesach, that he was offered, so to speak, at the crucifixion. And we know that at the covenant of the parts, that is the first time that the word Lapid is ever mentioned in the Torah, is in the covenant of the parts. And Yeshua is the Lapid. And so we see that the ultimate covenant, you understand the covenant of the parts was the, the really the first of the, uh, the beginning of the covenants with uh, God and Abraham and God and us. And so it's fulfilled when? At the carbon Pesach. Why? For our redemption. So we see all the beauty of that uh, picture there. So the water comes back uh, in verse 28. The water came back, covered the chariots, drowned all of uh, Pharaoh's army. And uh, they were coming behind them in the sea. They re they rem there remained not one of them. So it says, The children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. The water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. And on that day, Hashem saved Israel from the hand of, of Egypt. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great hand that Adonai inflicted upon Mitzrayim, and the people revered Hashem, and they had faith in Hashem and Moses and his servants. When you read the Haggadah, you see that uh, the sages teach that there were actually 50 plagues unleashed at the sea. Why 50? Because during the, uh, the exodus from Mitzrayim, there were 10 plagues, and the Egyptian uh, sorcerers and said, hey, this is the finger of God. So the sages surmise that if there was only 10 plagues and it was just the finger of God, then at the sea we saw the mighty hand of God, therefore there were 50 plagues. And uh, the Haggadah goes into detail about that, enumerates those and so on, but that's uh, just a little bit of that, uh, of, uh, of all of that. So we see, um, uh, let's see here, uh, uh, comments to uh, that Orhahan makes to verse 27. Verse 27 says, Moshe stretched out his hand over the sea, and towards the morning the water went back to its powers as, as the Egyptians were fleeing uh, toward it, and Hashem churned Egypt in the midst of the sea. Orhahayim says uh, that the Midrash also states that the sea refused to split at Moshe's command until God appeared at his right. Yet, the Talmud in Chulin 7a teaches something very interesting. It says that Rabbi Pincus ben Yar could split rivers even without God's obvious intervention. By the way, when the Torah says that the water was split at the Red Sea, it actually doesn't say these waters or those waters or that water, but it says the waters. And so the sages, understanding the Hebrew connotation, said that what happened supernaturally is that all the waters and all the world split on that very day. Can you imagine that? If you were some barbarian living in the uh, you know Viking region, you're minding your own business one day, and all of a sudden your river splits in two. 
So it says here, anyway, going back to Rabbi Pincus ben Yar, he says that he could split the waters even without God's inter intervention. So the sages naturally say, why did the sea defy Moses despite the primeval stipulation? That is means to say that Hashem told the sea, one day I'm going to come to you and you're going to split. So the sea knew that this was the day. He had The sea had it on its calendar. So it said, uh, why did the sea defy Moses? And uh, how is it that Rabbi Pincus and other great Zadokim through the ages had the ability to perform natural, uh, nature-altering miracles? So well, how is this possible? Okay, so Orchaim explains that the strongest force in all of creation is the Torah, which is the basis of all existence. What's, what, why is this? Why is this? Because the Torah is the DNA of creation. Everything that was made, as the scripture tells us, was made vis-a-vis -vis the Torah. The Torah, of course, is Yeshua made flesh, obviously. Okay? So the Torah, therefore, is the most powerful force in creation. Why? Because it is the building blocks of creation. It is literally the DNA of creation. You and I were made with Torah. The water that we drink is made with Torah. The, the chairs that we're sitting in ultimately are made with Torah. Everything around us is made with Torah. Torah is the matrix of creation. So it says here, Moses could not split the sea. Why? Because the Torah had not yet been given to Israel. Remember, we were idolaters at the sea. But it ascended to Moses, acceded rather to Moses' command when God stood at his right. Okay? It goes on to say, because, as mentioned above, right symbolizes the Torah. Right symbolizes the Torah, and the right hand symbolizes mercy. Now, this is an important little connection here that you need to get. Because we read that the right hand symbolizes mercy. This is why Yeshua said, I'm going to bring in the sheep with my right, and I'm going to bring in the goats, with, push away the goats rather with my left. Why? Because right symbolizes mercy, grace, love, compassion, and left represents judgment. So if you're in the covenant, you get to come to the right. If you're outside of covenant, you get pushed away with the left. So here it says, the right symbolizes the Torah, which means what? It means that the Torah is mercy. The Torah is love. The Torah is kindness. Quite the opposite of what people think. Now, it says here, God showed, God was showing that the, the sea, that Israel's readiness, indeed their anxiety, to receive the Torah had already earned it the elevated status that the Torah would confer upon such people. So, we read from this, when Messiah says, you shall do these miracles in my name. So, Messiah is the Torah made flesh. Why do we have the, the ability, why do we have the potential to perform miracles and the answer is is because we have the holy torah we have the messiah yeshua we this is why we say bishim yeshua we are saying in the name and the merit that uh, that is in the merit of yeshua which is by the way very jewish to pray in the merit of a zadik 
But what we're also saying on a more sold level, on a deeper, more mystical level, is in the name or the merit of the Torah. So why does nature have to comply? Because its creator, so to speak, is the Torah. Now, some might say, I thought the creator was God. And the answer is, yes. Hashem is the Torah, you see. This is all from Jewish understanding, trust me. So, uh, so we have, going moving forward here, a very inter- uh, little life lesson insight that the art school Humash brings down that it says here, once that the parting of the Red Sea happened, everything was made clear. All of, this, all of the, the trials, all the struggles, all of the, uh, the, everything we had been through at the Red Sea suddenly became obvious. It suddenly became crystal clear. Once they attained the realization, they also, it says, became convinced that all the myriad events of the past and future that they still did not know or comprehend were all part of God's plan as well. Midrash Tankuma teaches... Because they believed, as the verse before the song tells us, they could sing. Only when creation became one harmonious whole in their minds and heart could the people translate it into a human song. This is talking about the very and, and deeply prophetic song of Moshe, right here in chapter 15 we're about to read. The point being is that uh, we can only truly sing this prophetic song when we understand that life is not random, that Hashem controls everything, and that everything in our life has meaning and has purpose. And when we are able to submit to that understanding, then prophetic song bursts forth. Because that's when we can say, Gamzule Tova to the good things, and Gamzule Tova to the bad things. Because we know that what is seemingly bad is ultimately going to result in the enemies, spiritual or material, being drowned in the waters of Torah. Incidentally, it says here also in the art school Chumash, that uh, all the people, this is according to Sota 30b, all the people were in, in this was such a, a, a prophetic moment, that everybody was elevated to the level of being able to prophesy. Very, uh, very spiritual moment here. There's, there's more about that. Let me just go back before we start reading the song. Let me read something to you or share an insight to you. The rest of the story about Pharaoh, okay? Because there is a debate about whether or not Pharaoh died here or he lived. So it says, according to the interpretation that Pharaoh was spared, which is, uh, I would suggest, the prevailing uh, the prevailing interpretation. And of course, that's the interpretation according to the Ten Commandments movie. If you watch the Ten Commandments movie, which is actually, as I said earlier, based on the Midrashic understanding, uh, in that movie, Yo Brenner, Pharaoh, uh, goes back to, uh, to his uh, palace, and he's all by himself. Why? Because his entire army is dead. He's the only one left. He was left behind. That's what it means, by the way, to be left behind. But anyway, I digress. It says, according to the interpretation that Pharaoh was spared, his survival was further fulfillment of the words of Hashem, for this I have set, Slika, 
For this I have let you endure in order to show you my strength and so that my name may be declared throughout the world. That's chapter 9 and verse 16 of Shemot. Later, Pharaoh became king of Nineveh. Okay? This is the back. This is the uh, Paul Harvey rest of the story. Later, Pharaoh became king of Nineveh and having learned from his experience, answered the prophet Jonah's call to repentance. This is from Tosefta and Targum Yonan 3.6. This is why the king of Nineveh was so quick to make Shuvah, because he was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to go through this again. But this is also another interesting insight here. A later Agadic work relates that Pharaoh did not die and will never die. He stands at the gate of Gehenna and greets the entering tyrants with the following words. Why haven't you learned from my life? I denied God's existence and he punished me harshly, but he forgave me. Now I can believe only in him. This is from Yerkamiel 1.28. This is a very inter interesting insight of what became of Pharaoh after this entire incident. Hashem uh, is... Uh, continuing, I should say, to use him for his own glory. Now, uh, also, before again, before we get to the song, I want to point one more thing out. In verse 29, it says here in the, in the uh, Torah, the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. The water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. So it says here, the water was a wall for them. Here the word Homa, wall, is written without the letter Vav with which it is normally spelled. The Makilta accordingly interprets it as chema, that is, anger. The waters were furious at the Israelites, for they brought an idol along with them. What was the idol? Okay, so there was an idol. So according to Sanhedrin 103b, it explains that when Moshe was trying to find the uh, tomb or the, the coffin of Yosef, he was told that Yosef was buried in the Nile. And so he doesn't, he was trying to uh, get the coffin to come up. So he performed a little bit of a miracle. He took a piece of uh, pottery shard and he wrote upon the piece of pottery shard the name Yudche Vavche. And he threw the piece of pottery shard into the water and it caused the coffin of Yosef to float to the top. And that's how he found the coffin. Well, there was a man named Mika who saw this happening and he secretly took the piece of tile. He found the piece of tile and he took it and he turned it into an idol. Mika was the very first sacred namer. Why? Because he turned the sacred name into an idol. You had to have the sacred name in order to uh, do anything. So he had this idol. And he took it with him secretly, and this is what the sea was talking about. So it says, this, this is brought down here, it says that this tile accompanied him when he crossed the sea, and it remained with Israel until the period of the Judges, and, and specifically in Judges chapter 17. It says the Talmud relates that the ministering angels wanted to destroy Micah, but God said to them, leave him alone. For he offers bread to travelers. This is from Sanhedrin 103b. So Rabbi Monk says 
This narrative demonstrates that an act of hospitality outweighs even the sin of idolatry. So we see here, just uh, just wanted to point this out because this tells us how powerful is hesed. How powerful is love? When we show kindness to people, how powerful is it that Hashem should uh, even forgive the sin of idolatry because we have shown kindness to someone else? Perhaps this is what Messiah Yeshua was alluding to when he said, if you give a cup of cold water in my name to the least of these, you've done so to me. Even so much as giving somebody a glass of water, you have done it as if you've done it to me. So, <clears throat> we read here in the chapter 15. So it says, uh, Then Moshe and the children of Israel chose to sing the song uh, to Hashem, and they said the following, I shall sing to Hashem, for he has exalted me above the arrogant. So, by the way, uh, there's commentary here that the Ruach HaKodesh fell upon all the people at this time, and that everybody broke out in the spirit of prophecy, and that uh, even the lowliest maidservant uh, uh, saw more on that day than the highest prophet. We literally saw God, we literally pointed at Him, and we literally said, this is my God and I will exalt Him. Uh, in fact, there is some commentary from Yehuda Halevi, and Rabbi Yosef Albo, and um, uh, I think those are those, uh, yeah, those are the two, and, and Shemos Rabbah, chapter 22, that uh, this gave rise to the understanding that even an Am Ha'aretz, <clears throat> even somebody who was lowly, who wasn't even uh, educated, had the potential to be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. <clears throat> Some believe that you can only be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh if you had an education. Um, but others said that uh, really all that was required to be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, was that you have a Muna. And in fact, this was one of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, that even the Am HaAdetz, even the one who was uneducated, even the lowly of the lowly, could be elevated to the, to the point at which he could sing the song. And that was a, a point of great uh, debate and contention. And of course, Messiah Yeshua confirms the former view when he says that, you know, he confirms that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. So anyway, it says, Then Moshe and the children of Israel chose to sing a song to Hashem, and they said the following, I shall sing to Hashem, for he is exalted above the arrogant. Uh, the sages also point out this is the point at which God became truly king. When did he become king? When we go through the mikvah. Before the mikvah, God is God, he's the creator, but when we come out of the mikvah, he's king of our life. He's the one we see. We recognize that he's the one who redeems us. So it says, having hurled horse and rider into the sea, verse 2, the might and vengeance of God was salvation for me. This is my God, and I will build him a sanctuary, the God of my father. The article Humash points out that when it says, I will build him a sanctuary, Rabbi Mendel of Colts and Rabbi Harsh expand this as to say, I will make myself a sanctuary for him. For the greatest of all sanctuaries, they point out, is a human being who makes himself holy. So the idea of you are the temple of God is 100% a Jewish idea. That's where it comes from. Uh, the concept of the, of the individual as a temple is 100% a Jewish idea. And it 
is just a further reminder that the reason that we follow a Torah life is, is because we are a temple. This is one of the things that was, uh, how should you say, was a, uh, a, a critical point of view, I guess you would say, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees took the temple uh, purity, the temple sanctity, the temple holiness, and they extended it to Kalal Israel. Why? Because they surmised from the Torah that God said, you should be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so they said, since God is everywhere, he doesn't just reside in the temple. That's ground zero, but it's not where he lives. He lives everywhere. And since we are a nation of priests, then it is incumbent upon us to live, all of us, as if we were priests serving God where? In the holy temple, which is what? Our lives, ourselves. They did not negate the temple, of course. It had a level of sanctity above and beyond uh, everything else. But what made the Pharisees special was because they viewed themselves as serving God, which is why we have, for instance, ceremonial hand-washing. That was for the priest. But wait, we're all priests. And this is confirmed, by the way, if you as, as a belief of the apostles, because the writer of the letter of the Hebrews refers to us as kings and priests, and even Kepha refers to those who are reading his letter as, uh, he actually quotes from Shemot 19, and says, you are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a peculiar people. So why did they say that? Because they too were Pharisees, and they understood this reality. So, it says here, that uh, going on, it says, another translation offered by Rashi is derived from, uh, no, that is beauty, I will beautify him by relating his praise. So in Shabbos 133b, the sages say, this is why we should do our very best to beautify a mitzvah. So this is why we have beautiful and very uh, uh, very uh, high quality tefillin. This is why we have beautiful mezuzahs, beautiful hand-washing cups, uh, beautiful tablecloths, beautiful challah covers, is because we should try to do everything beautiful for God, which is one of the principles why we should not dress down for Shabbat. When Shabbat comes, we should wear our very best. That's a Jewish concept. Why? Because we're beautifying the mitzvah. So when Shabbat comes, you should wear you know, your best clothes. Because we're beautifying the mitzvah. So, there's even a principle, by the way, that if you buy a pair of dress shoes, um, that uh, you should wait to wear them um, for the Sabbath. And you should say the bracha for, uh, you know, um, for the first time wearing something, you should wear it for the Shabbat. Why? Because everything everything uh, honors the Sabbath. So it says... <clears throat> Hashem is a master of war. His name is, is Hashem. Ha, uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he threw into the sea. And the pick of his officers were mired in the sea of reeds. Deep waters covered them. They descended to the depths like stone. Your right hand, Adonai, is glorified with strength. Your right hand, Hashem, smashes the enemy. In your abundant grandeur, you shattered your opponents. You send forth your wrath. It consumes them like straw. At a blast of your nostrils, the waters were heaped up. Straight as a wall stood the running water. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the Torah, in the heart of the sea, rather, Slika. 
The enemies declared, I will pursue you. I will overtake you. I will divide and plunder. I will satisfy my lust with them. I will unsheathe my sword and my hand will impoverish them. You blew with your wind. The sea enshrouded them. The mighty sank like lead in the water. Who is like you among the heavenly powers, Hashem? Who is like you, mighty in holiness, who also for praise and do of wonders? The sages say that actually that line, Pharaoh wrote it. That that line was actually Pharaoh when he saw his entire army drowned in the sea. He finally, 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 after everything, decided to give God praise. So we see here, by the way, uh, before we uh, say the Amidah, when we stand up to say the Amidah, we actually recite these verses from the uh, Song of Moshe. Why? Because before we can come to God as our provider, we're giving him praise, we're asking things for him, uh, from him rather, uh, we're saying all the Shemona uh, Yesterday were the 18 benedictions of, of uh, the, 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 the prayer. Before we can do that, we have to acknowledge that Hashem is our Redeemer, that he's the one who not just brought us out of Egypt, but also mikvahed us in the sea and therefore is the king of the universe and therefore king of our lives. So this is why we say uh, here we have in our, in our sitter, you'll notice right before we say uh, the uh, Amidah, we say, This is why we say it. We quote actually from this verse. And when the Chazan says, Hashem shall reign for all eternity, this also comes from this parasha where it's in, in chapter 15 and verse 18. So we actually say uh, uh, two pasukim uh, uh, um, from the uh, this particular song before we come into the, the throne room of the King of Kings and recite the uh, Amidam. So it says, You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. With your kindness you guide this people that redeemed. You led with your might to the, to the holy abode. Peoples heard they were agitated. Terror gripped the dwellers of Felicia. Then the chieftains of Edom were confounded. Trembling gripped the powers of Moab and all the dwellers of the Canaan dissolved. Basically the entire world heard about this. Plus, remember, the waters are parting in their area. So at this situation, the entire world is recognizing that God is God. May fear and terror befall them at the greatness of your arm. May they be still as stone until your people pass through. Hashem, until this people you have acquired passes through, you will bring them and implant them in the mount of your heritage, the fountain of your dwelling place that you, Hashem, have made. The sanctuary, my Lord, that your hands have established. Hashem shall reign for all eternity. Right? When Pharaoh's cavalry came with his chariots and horsemen into the sea, Hashem turned back the water of the sea upon them. The children of Israel walked on dry land in the sea. And then in verse 20, something interesting happens. It says, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took her drum in her hand, and all the women went forth after her with drums and with dances. In other words, the sages bring down that Miriam started to lead everybody in song and dance as well, the men included. We see that the men sang, but the women danced. This is not necessarily uncommon. It's very common for women to, to be more, uh, oh, I don't know, more into praise and worship. But um, what we see here is that the reason the sages say that uh, the women danced is because they had more to, uh, they had more to lose. So Miriam spoke up to them and said, Sing to Adonai, for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled horse and its rider into the sea. 
Moses caused Israel to journey from the Sea of Reeds, and they went to the wilderness of Shur, and they went to a three-day journey in the wilderness, but they did not find water. They came to Mara, but they could not drink the waters of Mara because they were bitter. Therefore, they named it Mara. The people complained against Moshe, saying, What shall we drink? They're already complaining. They cried out to Hashem, and the water, sh and Hashem showed him a tree, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There he established for the nation a decree and an ordinance, and there he tested it. He said, If you hearken diligently to the voice of Hashem, your God, and do what is just in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and observe his decrees, then any of the diseases that I place upon Egypt I will not bring upon you, for I am Hashem your healer. That, my friends, is the end of the Aliyah today. We'll take up uh, more tomorrow with God's help. I hope you have a blessed, awesome, and wonderful day. We look forward to uh, tomorrow. Bezrat Hashem. Shalom, shalom. Smile at somebody. Be hospitable, that is, to somebody today. And show them kindness. Shalom, shalom.